Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a guest that's been on our show twice before. First, when he was senior counsel to the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And then now we're going to tell you about what he's doing since 2006. He's wonderful. He's Chris Hoofnagel, and he is the senior staff attorney to the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic and senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And he focuses on consumer privacy law. And as I stated before, he from 2000 to 2006, he was senior counsel to EPIC, which is the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and director of the organization's West Coast office. At EPIC, he concentrated on financial services privacy, telemarketing regulation, and consumer profiling. He was also a non-resident fellow with Stanford University's Center for Internet and Society for the 2005 academic year. Chris is a nationally recognized expert in information privacy law. He has testified before the U.S. Congress and the California Senate and Assembly numerous times on such things as privacy, social security numbers, credit transactions, and much more. The text of his written testimony is online at Epic. Org. Chris was also the author of many amicus briefs uh, for the Supreme Court of New Hampshire and other places. He has written extensively and also produced many white papers, two of which we're going to talk about today. Chris is a regular contributor to print, radio, and television articles, and he has also provided commentary for thousands of news stories in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, National Public Radio, ABC News, and of course, many other media outlets, including KUCI. You can find out much more about him and his wonderful writings at law.berkeley.edu slash Samuelson Clinic. And there you can click on the professors and fellows and the staff, and you'll find Chris Hoofnagel. So without further ado, I want to welcome you, Chris. Thanks for joining us from San Francisco. Thank you for having me today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, you're terrific, and you're doing so much wonderful work. But I want my audience to understand more about the Samuelson Clinic and the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Why don't you explain what, what that's all about? Well, we're housed at UC Berkeley's School of Law, And it's our primary duty to train young people to practice public interest law. Uh, So through the Samuelson Clinic, we train students in public interest advocacy, um, especially with regards to technology and on the various issues that new technologies pose for um, uh, consumers and for our society. And for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology is more of a research job uh, where we um, organize conferences and um, 
do legal scholarship in the field of technology and law. So what wonderful role are you playing right now? Well, I, have, I really am uh, blessed. I have groups of students who work on research projects. Um, uh, this past semester, I taught information privacy law at Berkeley, which was a real pleasure. Um, and this summer, I have a group of undergraduate students from, uh, from around the country who are visiting Berkeley, and they are studying the phenomenon known as flash cookies, um, which essentially is a new form of cookie that are being deposited in uh, people's browsers and can be used to track individuals. Oh, that's interesting. You're going to have to talk about more about that. So help me understand, how, how does that work when I visit a website Instead of just placing a cookie on my website, what's the difference between a regular cookie and a flash cookie? Well, a flash cookie is larger. It's delivered to your browser through the flash application. So um, it's present on websites that have video, typically. And um, the cookie is also more persistent, meaning that it is difficult for individuals to delete. So we're spending the summer looking at who's using these cookies, the purposes for which they're using them, whether or not consumers have effective controls to delete or otherwise um, uh, control them, and uh, what it means for individuals' privacy. Right. So if I have on my computer that I that I'm blocking cookies and I'm I'm you know I try to go in and delete through Explorer. You're saying that I can't delete those or I can't block those from coming in? That's right. You're getting right to the issue at hand. Um, the browsers, uh, like Internet Explorer and Mozilla Firefox and Safari, all have controls that allow the user to limit uh, the, the installation of cookies on their computer. Flash cookies are a little bit different. The controls are actually in the Flash application. They're not very easy to use. And when you do use them, it might reduce your ability to go look at websites. It might uh, make the, uh, the internet less functional. Sorry. Um, so, we, so we're looking at those issues this summer. So that's interesting. So if I want to go to YouTube, for example, and I want to see some videos of friends that I know that they put up there, I, uh, when I do that, when I open that, that automatically will put one of these uh, cookies on my flash drive or, or put it on my, not on my flash drive, but will put it on my hard drive? Is that yeah. what you're saying? And, and it's still unclear what the purpose of that cookie is. It could be used to simply note your preferences. So um, the cookie could record the fact that uh, you have a certain size monitor or that you want to watch videos on high definition. Um, the cookie could also be used to track you uniquely, and we're more interested in that problem. Right. So if, if um, for example, Google is, is YouTube, right? Yes. They're, so, well, they're owned by the same. Yeah, right, right. I mean, Google owns YouTube. So that means that if that cookie is on my hard drive because I look at YouTube videos, that means that Google can c actually compare that or profile with the other things that they have in there if I use Google and then create more of a profile on me? Is that what you're saying could happen? Well, there's a lot of different outcomes with the Flash cookie. Uh, there is one advertising company out there that claims that it can reverse um, consumers' deletion of cookies. So the idea would be, as an advertising website, you would plant cookies on, um, on individuals' browsers, and you'd use Flash to duplicate those cookies. And if the consumer erased his or her cookies in order to um, avoid tracking, um, the Flash cookie could be used to recreate the deleted cookies. Oh, my goodness. So that, that's one business model that is explicitly advertised out there. Now, so what about on their privacy policy when, when you actually go to YouTube or, or Google? What about the privacy policy? Is that transparent when you go there or not? Well, I don't think – part of our survey this summer is to see who is doing this. And I don't think Google is doing that. 
Um, but but the, the larger problem here is, is that, you know, advertisers have long promised that people could opt out of, of uh, targeting. Um, but while making that promise, some have started adopting technologies that um, eliminate your ability to opt out. Oh, my um, goodness. So we're... We're looking at that this summer uh, pretty carefully, and we should have a report on it coming out in August. You know, that sounds like a deceptive practice to me. <laughs> it really does. I mean, is there anything, I guess when you do this study, then you might share it with the Federal Trade Commission and other regulators to see what they want to do about investigating this. Yeah, and we're writing just a technical study. We're not writing a legal study on, on the use of uh these technologies, because my summer students are, are prim primarily programmers and engineers. Um, but there is an argument out there that this, that this activity it could be understood as unfair, because consumers really have no way to avoid the tracking. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and the FTC, uh, the FTC could view this practice as causing substantial consumer harm. Right, and there's, people don't know about it. And That's I exactly never right. even, yeah, I never even heard of it. So I always learn so much from, from you, Chris. That's why I'm always so thrilled to always have you on. So what are some of the other projects uh, that you've had? I know you've done things about privacy attitude surveys. Why don't you kind of tell us some of the other things that you're, you're dealing with? That's actually on the most exciting project that we have running this summer. We are fielding a national survey, a telephonic survey, on consumer attitudes towards information privacy. Um, it's in the field right now. So our, our survey group is calling people um, um, every evening uh, to hear, to interview them and to hear what they think about a number of different privacy problems. Isn't that funny, though, that you're, you're invading somebody's privacy to call them and then ask them about their privacy feelings? Yeah. That, that there <laughs> it's is, kind of like, oh my goodness, this is kind of contradictory. It, and I, I think that, you know, there's, there is um, kind of a, a brewing problem in the privacy field that, that um, privacy regulations do sometimes get in the way of individuals wanting to do research. And uh, it, it's a problem in part because, especially when it comes to telephonic polling, um, American consumers are so jaded about telemarketing that they don't really believe you when you, when you call them up. I say, don't. I mean, if you would call me, I would say, I'm sorry, I don't participate in anything like this. You know, because I don't know who you are. I mean, for you, if you called me, if it's somebody I know and said, hey, Mari, you know, will you do this? Well, can I have one of my students call you and I'll tell you who the name is and they're going to call you and you answer the questions? Well, I trust you. I would do it. But if I just get a call, a random call, I could tell you, no way am I going to talk to them, whether they're calling my office or my home, which hopefully they won't call my home. But I think that there is a lack of trust because of what we know about fraud, identity theft, people maybe are, are getting more conscious of the fact that maybe they shouldn't just talk to strangers. I think, I think you're right about that. I think individuals are more likely to exercise what I'd call privacy self-defense. And, 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 and the most basic element there is the idea that, you, that when someone asks you, about, uh, asks you for personal information, you should say, well, why? Well, why do you want it? Mm -hmm. um, we do begin our survey by saying we are calling on behalf of the University of California, um, and uh, the, um, the survey participant can get our contact information to complain or to offer feedback. Um, but there is, a, there is an interesting problem out there, and I think I, I, your point speaks to a bias problem in that um, people who care and know the most about privacy might be more likely to simply say, no, I don't want to talk to you. Right, so right. we don't capture that demographic exactly. in, our, in, our, in our results. Still, we're doing some interesting things. We're, we're testing privacy knowledge and attitudes. So uh, I'm sure you know this, Mari, from years of working on these issues, but many different businesses out there try to characterize Americans as reasonable. And reasonable people are happy with the kind of level of protection for privacy that currently exists, <laughs> is what the argument goes. And mm -hmm. We're actually testing that. We're, we're asking people what their attitudes are, and then we're asking them questions 
to see whether or not they know what privacy protections exist. Um, and and uh, we have hypotheses that, that about uh, the idea that basically people who say they don't want new privacy laws say that because they don't understand that so much of the landscape is unprotected by law. Right. I think you're absolutely right. From the people that I talk to and and even, you know, colleagues, when they don't understand the ramifications, they don't think they need it. And then all of a sudden, when they have a problem with a bank or a credit card company, or they have a problem with some telecommunications company, all of a sudden they go, oh my goodness, this is horrible. How did they get this information? Why are they sharing it? Why is this happening? Why am I a victim? So I think you're absolutely right. It's because they they are really not conscious. You know, another thing I was thinking of, and this just came up last night when I was talking to my daughter who had a problem with her bank. Uh, She had overdrafted $7 and then she got four $35 charges and and we were talking about financial literacy and i don't th- aside from privacy i don't think people have financial literacy and my daughter who's now at uci was saying to me you know mom i never had financial literacy in high school you've tried to tell me things but i've poo-pooed it and i never learned it in college i have these stupid things like i have to take a logic class to graduate from uci but why don't I have to take a financial literacy class to graduate from UCI or even to graduate from high school? I don't think, I think that that kind of a class and maybe even a class that included not only financial savviness, but privacy savviness needs to be taught at at least the junior high, high school level. They don't know it, Chris, right? I think increasingly students are less likely to have a um, you know a basic class in home economics, and that's where you would ordinarily learn um, uh, basic skills like how to write a check. And it, it's interesting to see that many young people do not actually know how to write a check or how to um, uh, deposit a check in such a way to minimize the risk of fraud, or how not to even use a check. <laughs> <laughs> or a debit card. You know, I mean, those are other things. And, and But, you know, she was saying to me, Mom, I don't know how I could ever, I don't even know. I don't understand the Federal Reserve. I don't understand things about stock. I don't understand things about mortgages and what I have to look for in, if, when I want to buy a house. It's true. They don't teach that. And it's uh, they should be teaching financial privacy and they should be teaching financial literacy. But but, you know, I remember, remember in FACTA, when FACTA got passed, there was a, a provision in there that there would be um, a big push on financial literacy. I haven't seen it. Have you? Yeah, they did issue reports, and uh, one of their efforts is to create uh, clearer notices. Um, but there is um, a lot of work being done, and most notably, uh, the work that's really being paid attention to falls in the vein of Cass Sunstein's book called Nudge, which basically uses behavioral economics and psychology to discuss the problem that even when you present people with information, they may misunderstand it. Um, and so the trend in this field, I, I think we're going to see in the Obama administration, is to create rules that nudge people in a way uh, in a certain way. It might nudge them towards more security. It might nudge them towards safer uh, financial products um, because we're not teaching financial literacy. And because even when we do teach it, sometimes lessons aren't learned um, from that instruction. Right, right. Well, let's get back to So what do you think the new administration means for information privacy? We have uh, a big shift, not only from one uh, you know, political party to another, but a, but a, a very big shift in the way that this administration is thinking about consumers. So what are your thoughts about information privacy in, in the Obama administration? Well, it's going to be interesting, interesting to see what happens. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of um, uh, political actors in their elections say one thing about privacy, but once elected, start thinking differently. Um, for a whole host of reasons. 
um, particularly with the Obama administration, they've learned about the power of using personal information. And just think of all the databases that were used to organize uh, President Obama's grassroots and other efforts. Um, sitting in the president's chair now, he's probably thinking, I don't want laws that would slow down the collection of that information. And that, informi that information might have gotten me into this chair. And, and maybe I could use that information for another purpose. <laughs> and, and I think that's the other, the, yeah. other, um, uh, the other strong force. I think um, executives have to take um, uh, security very seriously and public safety very seriously. And anything that slows down their ability to collect intelligence can, um, uh, can really hamper their, um, their legitimate uh, uh, role uh, as, as um, a guardian of public safety. Um, so, it, so there's a lot of different things coming together in the, in, in the, uh, the Obama administration. Another force uh, here is the Web 2.0 world, and many many executives and other people involved in the so-called Web 2.0 um, um, are now in the administration. And I think they're going to be very... And let's just explain to my audience about the interactiveness of Web 2.0 and what that means in case they don't understand. Well, I'm not sure anyone really understands what Web <laughs> 2.0 means, but it's, it's a word that's, that's a, it's a term used to describe websites like social networking websites like Facebook and um, MySpace, where an increasing amount of the data is generated not by the site, but rather by users and what users say about themselves and about other people. Mm -hmm. um, and these tools were immensely useful to President Obama in his organization. Um, to spread the word. Uh, to spread the word. And I think a lot of the people who built those tools are now in the administration and they are going to be very skeptical of, of laws that, that slow down those business models. Right. And, and Obama grew, grew up, so to speak. He's younger, so he's been much more involved with using the technology. I mean, he wasn't real happy when they limited his use of his BlackBerry. But he also is doing something for financial privacy or financial literacy when he has introduced the, well, he wants to have a, fi a consumer financial commission, which would be, I think, I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but I was just talking last week with Edward Merzwinski, who talked about the fact that that would help consumers with many of the problems that people have with their credit cards and their financial issues and their financial privacy with banks. So on that hand, um, he is looking toward at least some kind of financial privacy, it looks like. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that, that that is an issue that needs to be revisited. Back in 1999, Congress passed a law, relatively weak law, um, creating some regulation of bank privacy. But I, I think what we're going to find when we, when we uh, boil down the subprime mortgage meltdown problem, we're going to find that banks used data to target people for products that they couldn't afford. And I think when we, when we finally unpack that, there's going to be a salient moment where Congress and the administration realizes that this information is powerful and it can be used to do great things, but it can also be used to take advantage of people. Um, and I think that will, that will form um, um, a turning point where we can start thinking about um, restrictions on how banks use data. There's a lot of real difficult problems out there. Um, you know, your bank knows a lot about you. They know where you spend your money and how much you spend it on. And so if your bank is also your insurance company, or, uh, or if your bank is also a mortgage loan company, um, that information could be used to make decisions about you. Um, either for your benefit or or not. Uh, sure, if if, they, if your fun. bank or your credit card company knows that you're spending a lot of money at clinics that treat you for HIV or treat you for cancer, and then they're also going to be the one that's going to make the home loan, perhaps, <laughs> or the one who's going to issue life insurance or 
health insurance or disability insurance, you know, there are a lot of decisions that could be very negative just by looking at your credit card statement or your bank statement. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's time that we revisit that. Um, um, now, didn't that, that changed in 1999, basically, with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that allowed companies to actually share that information and also for to share it just, you, you know, as much as possible with their affiliates. And if you look at some of the very big companies that own banks and insurance companies, and they can freely share that with each other. And um, the whole Modernization Act really worked against consumers, didn't it? I think that there is a, a potential for this data to be used against consumers' interests. But one real problem is that we don't have much transparency. Um, under the law that you mentioned, uh, you can't, for instance, go to your bank and say, tell me uh, to whom you've sold my data, or tell me which affiliates have received information about my bank account. This is really problematic if you use a real big bank. Uh, bank of America has 2,000 affiliates. So under, under federal law, um, your uh, information about your bank account can be shared with all those companies. Right. Not it, it isn't necessarily done, but it can be. Um, here in California, we've tried to, um, uh, to limit that. Um, however, the banks have gone all the way to the Supreme Court to challenge California's um, uh, limits on, on financial information sharing. Right. We're speaking with Chris Hoofnigel. He's an attorney, and he's the senior staff attorney to the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic and senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. And he is an expert on privacy law, and we're talking to him about what it means to us right now for each one of us who's listening here about privacy in the information age. So a lot of things are, are going to be changing, you know, with this new administration, and Congress is considering considering quite a bit of privacy legislation, and it has been before. What bills do you think are going to have some uh, real activity and, and maybe have a chance for passage in, the, in, in our federal law? Well, the one issue that seems to reoccur year after year is the idea of a federal security breach law. Um, right now, about 45 states have a law uh, that requires businesses and governments to tell consumers when their personal information has been stolen. There's been a lot of um, angst in the business community about these laws, and they want a single federal law that will be easier to comply with rather than all these different state laws. Um, and so I think we're likely to see a security breach bill move, although I don't think it will pass. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of obstacles to a law like that passing. I think the other area where we're going to see um, legislation move is, is in behavioral targeting and behavioral advertising. Um, there's certainly a renewed interest in Congress to deal with websites that follow your activity over time in order to send you advertisements. So and much... Um, much internet advertising is contextual, meaning if you go to a website about bicycles, you'll probably get ads about bicycles. Or uh, website advertising could be based on search. So if you search for bicycles, you get ads for bicycles. Um, but increasingly, uh, uh, ads are going to be targeted based on what you did yesterday or a month ago. There's a real feeling that when you're tracked over periods of time, um, the the privacy issues and the creepiness factor of that activity might be heightened. And it, uh, and I think we're, we're likely to see Congress move some legislation on that. And, and what do you think would be, if it's going to pass, what do you think it will look like? I don't think it's going to pass this year. I think it's going to take a number of years to ultimately pass, in part because we don't understand the scope of the problem. And it's not even really clear to me what to do about the problem. Um, uh, some of the proposals out there would require websites to obtain a 
affirmative consent. So uh, they'd have to get your express permission before your browsing history, your internet activity is shared with a, with a third party. And the standard would be opt-out, meaning that the website could use your information unless you objected for internal marketing uses. Um, I, I think that there's a big problem at the heart of this legislation, and that is that the, the privacy problem is that these websites are tracking you over time. But when you opt out, you don't opt out of the tracking. You opt out of getting the tailored advertisement. Right, right. You, you're not opting out of the tracking, tracking, you're opting out of them being able to use it for another purpose such as marketing, but it doesn't necessarily keep them from using it for another purpose other than marketing. Well, they'll still use it for marketing, but perhaps not marketing to you, perhaps marketing for someone similar to you. Okay, so they'll sell it to someone else, and then that that other company may market to you or may, I, I, who knows? I mean, it depends on what the law would be. Right now, it's an open field. Am I correct? Yeah, it's, it's essentially governed by um, what I would call the federal common law, which is the, the series of decisions made by the Federal Trade Commission. And that simply means that the advertising, the, uh, the practices, the tracking practices can't be unfair or deceptive. Uh, but what you'll find when you look at those privacy policies is that they disclose, we track you. Um, so they say up front that they're doing this. Um, but I really doubt that most, most people or even those of us who follow the field closely understand the scope of tracking that's occurring and uh, what it will mean going forward. Even if they say we won't sell it or share it, it except for legal purposes, you know, or by law, by law could mean what? I mean, it could be law enforcement. It could be maybe a secret service. It could be, you know, some governmental entity like the IRS that wants to get it. You know, you really don't know what that means when they say except is allowed by law. Yeah, the law <laughs> itself could, could say that it could be used for marketing purposes. And, um, you know, the other, the other, um, outcome that you frequently say is that you see in these privacy policies is towards the end it will say something like, if this company is acquired or goes out of business, right. personal information that we collected is an asset. And, well, I mean, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they can sell it. Right. If they, if they declare bankruptcy, it can be sold. Or, or if they're just acquired. And many of these, com- many of these companies, their goal was to get acquired. They, you know, right, they, they want to build it up and sell it. Yeah, that's, a, that's the name of the game. Exactly. Um, so, uh, it, that, so privacy policies that, that, that disappear uh, once a company is sold don't really offer you much protection. You know, so many of these privacy policies that I read really are deceptive. I, I think people don't understand them. Even if they're starting to use simpler language, the ambiguity of these are are what is deceptive and it's not revealing what's really going to happen even though you have the federal trade commission that can take actions look at the money that they would have to have to do it there are not enough resources for the federal trade commission to handle all of the types of complaints that they get so it's it's kind of a joke what about a private right of action? And many of these things, we don't even have a private right of action. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I do think consumer law needs to have some type of private right of action. And, uh, but there are many obstacles uh, to that. Uh, there are many people who will lobby very, uh, very aggressively against giving individuals right to sue. But even when you do have a right to sue, many courts will not assign damages um, unless you are harmed. And right. when the court says you have to show harm, they mean they usually mean economic harm. Yeah, pecuniary. Mm-hmm. That, that's very hard for a consumer whose privacy is invaded to show. Um, and, and, and all these security breaches, we've found that, for example, the veterans tried to sue for having to worry about the future of how their identity might be stolen or many of the other cases. 
and they are not awarded any damages because they can't prove that they've become a victim yet. So you're right. Exactly right. And so, um, so one of one of the things that lawyers in this field have been trying to do is is figure out theories for describing the harm of a security breach. Right. And it's roughly analogous to um, forms of mental malpractice, medical malpractice. So let's say that you went to go get a medical procedure done, and they botched it, but they didn't harm you. Instead, they made you 30% more likely to get, um, let's say they made it 30% more likely for you to die right. um, in, um, in, in 10 years. Well, or the asbestos cases, but the asbestos cases, remember, I mean, people can collect if they've been exposed to asbestos. So that's another similar analogy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it, it's clear that it's clear that you've been harmed, but the harm hasn't come to fruition. Right. So maybe asbestos is the right analogy, but thus far, those cases have failed. And uh, courts have been unwilling to put privacy harms in the same frame as asbestos harms. We'd have to get legislation to make it so, I think. I think that's the only way to make it happen, is to show the emotional distress and the effort and time and expense of someone having to continue to be on alert and continue to have to take affirmative actions to protect their identity with credit monitoring, with continual background checks, with all of these other types of monitoring. That, that is very time-consuming and costly. And, you know, when I've been an, uh, an expert on some of these cases like that, that's the kinds of stuff I point out is that in order to really protect yourself from that future harm because of the security breach, they have to take affirmative actions, and those affirmative actions are costly. And those, should, those are pecuniary, right? Yeah, and I'm working on an article now on identity theft where I, I think this is where my argument is going to go, that the idea that it's essentially the idea that there should be a default kind of damage assigned to a victim of identity theft to, to compensate them for their time. Time is money. Right. And if you have to spend 40 hours of your life fixing a problem, you've been harmed. Um, and you should be compensated for that harm fairly. Yes. And so I'm trying to think through the right model for, for dealing with that. Well, we should talk about that because I've, I've written a lot on that in some of my expert witness te- testimony, so we can talk about that and maybe collaborate on, on that issue. Oh, yeah. I'd love to do that. Yeah. So let's go to what you've done. You've done some great work on bank safety, which is something that drives me crazy. I love your idea that you in your one of your recent articles here um, on bank safety, safety. And why don't you explain what you mean towards a market for bank safety? This was one of your more recent white papers. Yeah, this is an, an article that uh, I spent a lot of time on. I, what I was trying to do was, I, I'm trying to create the idea that, that, that banks and other financial institutions might compete for, to prevent fraud. So we, we all know that banks provide better interest rates, um, and you might decide to go with Bank A rather than Bank B because it has a 4% checking account rather than a 3% checking account. Right, right. So why couldn't we have a similar situation when it comes to fraud levels? Um, we know that different banks have vastly different problems with fraud. And if you, you know, if you moved to a new city and you were deciding to open up a bank account, know about identity theft, maybe you'd like to open an account with a bank that has a low risk of, that has a historically low risk of fraud. Yes. Um, I think that's the type of decision a consumer should be able to make. Um, so I've tried to kickstart this idea. Uh, I, r- I wrote a series of articles that, that looked at fraud statistics um, 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 at banks and tried to rank banks. Um, based on the prevalence of fraud. Right, and you got this, and I think this is when I think in our last conversation on this radio show, we talked about the fact that the Federal Trade Commission 
com- uh, accepts complaints from victims, and you did a Freedom of Information Act request to get that complaint data, and that's how you were able to do your study. It was yeah. great. It's, I owe much of this to you because you've given me so much good intelligence on, on how to, to execute this. Um, so uh, I literally got, one, I got hundreds of thousands of consumer complaints um, about financial identity theft, and um, I, I put them into a database program and normalized the data and tried to rank banks uh, based on the prevalence of, of, of complaints to the Federal Trade Commission. Yes. A lot of problems in doing this. Um, you know, uh, consumers actually don't know where to complain. I, I estimate that one in 32 um, victims of identity theft actually make a complaint. And, and you know the reason why, right? Well, they it, don't know. It's first of all, they don't know. But then sometimes when they visit the website and it says, we cannot take your case, we will just, you know, collect this information – they get frustrated. They're already spending so many hours on just cleaning up the identity theft problem that they want to go to somebody who's actually going to take some action and help them. Yes, the Federal Trade Commission has a great website, but they don't really help the people through the problem. So instead of spending hours and hours writing out the complaint, Many of them don't bother. I mean, because they come to me and they go, oh, I said, did you make a complaint about this? No, you know what? I'm just, I have too much to do. I don't have the time to fill that out. And, and that's what they tell me. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a rational response. Um, the FTC will not take a case on your behalf. Uh, they're just collecting this data statistically. Um, and so it's unclear what the real it's not immediately um, clear what the, the benefit to the consumer is for, for filling out that form. And it takes a long time to fill out the form. Right. So, um, so we do have, you know, about one in 32 consumers. Um, nevertheless, I got hundreds of thousands of these complaints. Right. But sometimes they get so aggravated, they want to just tell somebody. They want to vent to somebody. Yeah. And, and um, reading the text of the complaints is often heartbreaking. But in, in looking at the complaints, we were able to aggregate institution names. So as, as part of the complaint, the, the victim of identity theft would say where their identity was stolen. So we, we focused on that information, we aggregated it, and then tried to sort it by um, uh, market share uh, so that the banks, uh, you know, uh, the banks could be compared fairly. Yes. And, and so I saw in your new, and I had read the first few studies that you had, but I thought this was interesting. You had, uh, in, in, as part of your study on towards a market for bank safety, you, you actually took those numbers and put them into to actually show which banks were safer and which companies were safer. Can you share some of that uh, right now with us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm more comfortable talking about the ones that had fewer complaints. Okay, let's start out with that. I, I know American Express is one of the best. Yeah, as far as credit card companies go, um, American Express had a, a much smaller rate of, uh, a much lower rate of identity theft problems than other credit card issuers. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, uh, I was happy to see that in the numbers because I thought that worded with, um, uh, with the kind of market that American Express serves. Um, uh, it, it, frankly, a different type of credit card for, and a different type of market. Um, but w- w- in, in as far as banks go, um, what, the bank that performed the best year after year was ING Bank. Um, it had very low rates of identity fraud. And I know personally that ING Bank has been on the forefront of implementing security mechanisms for their customers. Um, the other um, aspect to this that, you know, maybe this is obvious, but the, the institutions with the most aggressive marketing almost always were at the highest levels of fraud. Um, so in, in looking at, for instance, the biggest credit card issuers, uh, Capital One um, is very highly ranked. And so they have a, 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 a 
huge amount of, um, of identity theft compared to the amount of volume they do. And I also think, I think that it makes a lot of sense, too, because Capital One has been one of the most aggressive marketers of cards out there. And when you uh, dial up your marketing, um, I think identity thieves focus on those institutions. Um, uh, and, and they actually target institutions that have a lot of marketing um, because they know that those, those institutions want to acquire new customers and their controls might be set down. Um, uh, uh, and make them more vulnerable to fraud. Right. And so, and it also tells you a little bit about when they're spending all that money on marketing. And if, if you know about the people inside the organization, the marketing people make money for the company and the privacy people and the compliance people don't make money. <laughs> for the company. And so marketing wins out. And when you're marketing aggressively, you're getting a lot more response. And when you're getting a lot more response, you're not spending the time to fairly find out if the person that's applying is really the person they say they are. I think you're making a great point. And this actually goes to a whole nother level where if you have identity theft reporting, if you have banks reporting statistically on how much theft they have, they can also report on how much theft they avoided. Um, so if they denied uh, 3% of applications um, uh, because they thought that those applications were fraudulent, um, they can actually put that on their books as money saved. Right. And at that point, the chief privacy officer is no longer a cost center, but rather can be a place that generates revenue. Exactly. Um, so I, this, I think you're right. This is all about incentives. The marketing people have all the incentives to, to market as many cards as possible, and the privacy people are subordinated to that. Um, so we have to figure out a way to change the incentives. So the privacy and security people are seen as contributing to the enterprise's profitability. Well, you know, and one of the other problems, Chris, and I don't know if this still goes on, I think it probably still does, is a lot of the fraud is written off as bad debt, which becomes a tax issue, okay? Bad debt is a write-off, and it is, they can, if they can characterize a lot of the fraud as bad debt that can't be collected, then that tax write-off is a money incentive, so you've got that problem, and, and going back to what you said, if you have to report how much is fraud and you have to really seriously report it and there's going to be accountability for reporting how much you avoided and how much you allowed, if you have that, then it cannot be a necessarily a tax write-off, although there are tax incentives for fraud as well. I just think that that's another stick that you have to, you know move aside. That's another problem. Yeah, that's another, it's another opportunity, the way I see it. I, and I think the data showed some other opportunities. Um, one, one thing that's notable is that telecommunications companies um, always were in the top 10 uh, when you just counted the raw number of complaints. So a huge amount of identity theft activity is being targeted at companies like Verizon and AT&T. Um, and my hypothesis here, and I'd love to hear if, if, if you see this in your practice, is that identity thieves are starting their enterprise by getting um, telecommunications accounts and then using those telecommunications accounts as a kind of bootstrap to get higher value accounts, such as bank accounts. Um, because, of course, it's easier to get a telecommunications account than it is a bank account. Right. And it shouldn't be that easy for them either. I mean, they should take the same steps. But again, you go back to the kind of marketing. I mean, if you look in the, the newspaper, most of the marketing is for Sprint, Nextel, T-Mobile. And it gets back to that whole issue of the marketing out there. They're marketing a lot. People are signing up and they're, they're actually issuing these kinds of accounts like Candy, and often they don't take that extra step to verify or authenticate the person that they're issuing that account to. 
So that's why they're doing that first. But, you know, there's another thing we're seeing, which is, um, I think, a little bit scary, uh, even scarier, is we're finding that the fraudsters, yes, they're using, um, they're bootstrapping off of the telemarketing accounts and and the cell phone accounts, but they're also doing something else now. They're getting fake business accounts, and they can use those fraudulent credit cards that are issued to them in a business. And by the way, the business doesn't even exist. You know, we could say Chris Hoofnigel, and then he's opened a restaurant, or Chris Hoofnigel has opened up a consulting firm, and now the fake Chris Hoofnigel got a business credit card in Chris's name, and Chris doesn't own a business because he works for Berkeley, okay? And those accounts don't appear on a credit report so that the victim doesn't know about it. Only appears when there has been fraud that goes to collections. So the fraudster can use that account for a much longer period of time. I'm seeing a lot of that this year. And when I interviewed Linda and Jay Foley, they're seeing a lot more of it as well. Yeah, this is clearly a new trend. Um, And what's strange about it is that the verifying the existence of a business is, is one of the easier things to do. But that's, again, if they're quickly marketing. I mean, I, I get all the time, I get, and I've tried, and I've opted out so many times. By the way, uh, you can opt out from having your name sold on promotion, 8885-OPT-OUT. However, for your business, it's not the same. You can't really opt out of that. So if you do own a business or if they think you own a business, they can market to you for all of these business accounts. And then when those business accounts are accessed by fraudsters, those and let's say you decline them but someone else opens them, you now have a fraudulent account and you're not covered by the Fair Credit Reporting Act in the same way that you are for consumer accounts. So um, it, it's it's a real catch twenty two for victims of identity theft, who's uh, been uh, fraud, you know, who's been affected by the fraud with a fraudulent business card, and it becomes even worse if you really do have a business and <laughs> someone opens up an account in your in your business and they don't even have anything to do with your business and you don't even know who they are. So what are you doing to tell people to help advise people to avoid this? Are you telling them to buy credit monitoring or credit insurance? Well, credit monitoring doesn't help you. Credit monitoring does not help you to see those business accounts because those accounts never are reported to the credit reporting agencies. Those are reported to Dunn & Bradstreet. So I wonder if there are any, um, there are credit monitoring firms that engage in what's known as identity level um, uh, monitoring. I wonder if, uh, any of those firms will start looking at Dun & Bradstreet to try to help. And, and I don't know of any who are. The only place you might find that there's anything appearing on your credit report will be with an inquiry. So, for example, for those people who are listening who aren't sure what I'm talking about, on your credit report, there's two sections that are called the inquiry sections. One says these companies accessed your credit report for the purpose of issuing you credit. You know, it was a permissible purpose. And you may see, let's say, Capital One or American Express on there, and you never applied for a Capital One or American Express card. And if you see that inquiry there, you need to call and find out, why did you get my credit report? And at that point, you may find out, well, gee, you applied for a business card, a business platinum card. So that's how you'll see it, is it will appear as an inquiry. But, you know, most people don't even look at those. They don't understand them. And some credit monitoring does not even include inquiries. One of the things that I saw very interesting was uh, the American Express credit monitoring, which I have, does not show account review inquiries. So that if there was a business account opened in my name the and they could review my account, I wouldn't see it on my credit monitoring. So I have uh, made a note to call American Express and tell them that I'm paying money for the credit monitoring, but I'm not seeing 
the account review section of the inquiries, which is where I would see the collection accounts. So most people don't even know how to read their credit reports, Chris. You know that? Unfortunately, I, that's, that's, a, that's a problem, and um, this stuff is very complex, and it's changing. Uh, I could just tell you that one of the questions we're asking in our national poll is, how many times a year do you read your credit report? And um, many people respond to us and say, none. And then they say, I don't check it, because when you check it, it hurts your credit score. Yeah, they don't understand that. And, and for anybody listening tonight, when you get your own credit report, it is not a ding against your score. Okay? It is not a ding against your score for you to get your credit reports as many times as you want. Only when you're applying for credit and there are uh, companies that are accessing your credit report that are not your own credit card companies, then it does affect your score. But if there's an account review, that does not affect your score. And that's a really important point. And you wouldn't, you'd be surprised how many people don't know that and how many people are, as a result, not taking this very basic and important step because they think it's going to hurt them. Right. Um, it, it, I think it's a, this is a real problem, and I, I'm not sure what we can do uh, to help alleviate. Yeah, it's just about education again. This is all about education. The other thing is, is, you know, I have people when they're going through a divorce and I'm mediating them, I bring them in and I, one of the first things I ask them to do is to get their credit reports and make a copy for each other and a copy for me to go over it with them and explain it to them. And I have attorneys that I do their divorce and they don't even understand how to read them. And you look at Equifax credit report and it looks different than TransUnion and it looks different from Experian. So you have to really look and try and even figure out what the thing is saying. It seems to me that they should at least have the same format and make it very simple and easy to use. But it's not, Chris. It really isn't. I have to look at it with a fine tooth comb and I do that all the time. Yeah, there's a problem of understanding the data, but also understanding what is actionable and what even can be done when something happens. Right, right. Let's switch gears a little bit because we only have like another minute and a half. And I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the privacy issues with Google. Could you kind of go over those? Because so many of us use Google and I don't think we really understand. Can you kind of give us a little bullet point overview? Yeah, I mean, Google is a wonderful uh, company, and they have all these great services, but it, it is important to think about how much uh, of uh, personal information, even business information, we're trusting to this company, um, in part because one, the Google model is to use that information for targeting of advertising. So uh, it, uh, it's, it's not like uh, um, another service that merely stores uh, personal information or documents. It actually, the, the company scans your documents, scans your email, etc., uh, for, uh, for advertising purposes. And um, it, it, I think it, it is time that we think more broadly about how much uh, data we are entrusting to it. And the fact that in entrusting this data to Google, we've, we've in, a, in a way, lost control of it. Right. Uh, and it, 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 it's easier for law enforcement to go get a document that you've put on Google Documents than if you kept it on your computer and just edited it in Microsoft Word or the like. Well, we're going to have to have you back on again real soon, Chris, because you have so much that you can educate us upon, and we want to know more about Google. And I want to send people to your website because they can learn more and look at your blog. So where would you like us to send everybody? Well, to samuelsonclinic.org. That's S-A-M-U-E-L-S-O-N, clinic.org. Okay, thank you so much, Chris Hoofnigle. You are terrific, and we will have you back again. You take care. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. I am host of Privacy Piracy. We air every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI.org and 
right on 88.9 FM in Irvine, please write us an email at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts and you can write us emails. And we would love to hear from you. So have a good night and stay private. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.